Leviticus 19, let's take our Bibles, Leviticus 19, we're in the Old Testament here this morning, right toward the beginning, if you're not familiar with the scripture, Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, third book in the Bible, chapter number 19. I want to speak to you this morning on something that has been on my heart for a while, and uh, I've been um, just kind of praying about it, and just felt like that the Lord gave me a green light to preach about this topic here this morning. I believe that it is a very important teaching that every believer ought to have a good, firm handle on what the Scripture teaches. And before I announce what that subject is, I'd like to just warn you that this is a needful subject in the modern Christian church today. Very needful. Some truths that have been um, forgotten overlooked, and sadly, a lot of God's people just simply don't seem to care. Leviticus 19 and verse number 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I want to speak to you this morning on the holiness of, of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask your blessings upon the message today. We ask for your grace, your strength, and for your power. Lord, not for our sake, uh, and not even uh, necessarily for the people's sake, but Lord, for your sake. We pray that you would bless, and we pray that you'd speak to our hearts, and may the truth of your holiness, may it be ever uh, just uh, present in our hearts and minds, may we, through the holiness of God, find our perspective and our vision of this world that we live in. And I pray, Father, that all the distractions of life would be removed, and God, that your presence would be manifest in a special way. Use this message, use this time that we have together to bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's a boy on the beach, and as many boys on the beach, they usually have a little plastic pail and a little plastic shovel, and this boy has taken that little plastic shovel, and he's dug a hole in the sand, and he commences to take his bucket, and he's about maybe 10, 12 yards from where the ocean is coming in. He takes his bucket, and he runs out, fills it up with seawater, and runs back and pours that in the hole that he had dug. Well, if you've ever been around the beach, you know that the sand that the hole is dug out of, that the water just has a tendency of absorbing into that hole. He goes out and he gets another bucket full of seawater, comes back, pours it in the hole, and he just keeps doing this. Well, a gentleman that had been walking on the beach and he just kind of stopped and watched this boy and found it kind of cute, he finally walks up to the boy and he says, "Uh, son, he said, what are you doing? He said, I'm pouring the ocean in this hole. Well, obviously that's impossible. You're not going to get the whole ocean in that hole. It's kind of like our subject today. When we start talking about the holiness of God, really it's a lot like trying to pour the ocean in a little hole that we've dug with our plastic shovel. John Wesley said this, Bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, 
And then I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. Theology is a topic of exploration, not discovery. We may see glimpses of God through the scripture, but we are incapable of comprehending the full picture. I enjoy looking in a clear night, seeing the stars. Generally from my back porch, I can see the Big Dipper. I can see some of the planets that look like a star that's just maybe shining a little bit brighter. But I know that you get outside of the city where the sky has just kind of the the, the city lights that are kind of clouding it a little bit. You get up in the mountaintop where there is no city lights. There's not the humidity that you that clouds the air. You start seeing more and more stars that were not visible um, when you were in the city. And it's the same thing with God. The more that we look, you can go to a mountaintop. You can get out a telescope. And science has telescopes that can see. I, I don't even know how to describe how far that those telescopes can see. But I know that the further they get out there, the more that they find additional layers and magnitude that literally blows our mind. We can't even comprehend the space and all that is out there in outer space. The church we were at in Idaho, um, there was a gentleman that attended that was a research uh, medical doctor. He made a statement to me one time. He said, Brother Mitchell, he said, in medical research, the more that we discover, the more that it simply opens up layers and levels. And when we make a discovery, we really find out how much more that we don't know. The same thing goes with the subject of the holiness of God. We cannot fully comprehend it. And so let's stick to the basics here this morning. God said to Moses, I want you to tell the people this. I'm holy, and I want you to be holy as well. What does it mean to be holy? Well, the the meaning of holy is certainly somewhat of a foreign concept to mankind. Have you ever thought about uh, describing nothingness? When you think about nothing, what do you come up with? In my mind, I just see something that's black, don't you? But black is something, so that can't be nothing. I can't describe nothing. Uh, You ever tried to describe eternity? Well, it's a long, long time. Wait a minute, time is a measurement. We cannot describe eternity. In the same sense, we cannot fully describe the meaning of holy. Now, the first mention of the word holy in the Bible is in Exodus chapter 3, verse number 5, when the Lord says to Moses, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. In our text, Leviticus 19, verse number 2, it denotes that holy means to be entire, perfect in a moral sense. We would use the adjective purity in order to describe holiness, but certainly while purity is included in holiness, it cannot and does not even come close to exhausting the definition. The term holy 
has something to do with being consecrated or set apart for sacred use. We find examples in the Bible when God refers to His Sabbath days as holy Sabbaths. He refers to His temple as being holy. He talks about holy vessels. And in this text that we just showed on the screen, He told tells Moses that this ground here that you're standing on is holy ground. It's been set apart for a specific purpose. When I think of the term holy, I think of a fancy theological word known as transcendent. We don't typically use that word in our common speech, but it's a good word that we ought to at least know a little bit about the word transcendent. It means to be above and beyond. It means that it crosses all boundaries of what we think to be high and majestic. You know what we have there? We have a holy God. In Revelation 4 and verse number 8, And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. They were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. I've been told that in the Hebrew language, they don't typically underline or italicize words for emphasis. And so in the Hebrew language, if they want to emphasize it, they do it by word repetition. Obviously, holy, holy, holy is something that God, through the Scripture, wants to highlight, underline, put the emphasis on. Notice that the seraphims did not try love, love, love. Even though the Scripture says that God is love. Holy is an attribute of attributes. Everything about God as an attribute, we can attach the word holy at the beginning. In other words, holiness is the very essence of God. His love is a holy love. His mercy is a holy mercy. His anger is a holy anger. Can you say that about your anger? That your anger is always holy? I find that my anger is pretty much never holy. But God's anger, everything about God is holy. Secondly, I'd like to focus on the holiness of God, which is demonstrated by His judgment. Hebrews 10 verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Boy, that doesn't sound like the God of the modern contemporary Christian movement, now does it? And yet God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the Lord, I change not, he says. He's the same God. Yes, he is a God of love and mercy and compassion. We'll see that here soon. But he is a God of judgment, and we dare not ever forget that or lose sight of that fact. The contemporary Christian movement today has tried to turn God into something that he is not. Back in the uh, 1600s, 
a great preacher in Massachusetts by the name of Jonathan Edwards preached a famous sermon entitled God, excuse me, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of souls came to Christ from the preaching of that message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The modern version of that sermon today would have to be entitled, God in the Hands of Angry Sinners. Because sinners don't like the God of the Bible, and so they just, they just kind of ignore the majority of the Bible, and they take one little verse here, and one little verse, or one little concept here, and they totally focus on that particular aspect of God at the expense of all the other attributes, and what happens is they've created their own God in their own heart. I'm here this morning to present to you the God of the Bible, the whole God, and nothing but the God. So help me, God. Holiness of God is demonstrated by His judgment. What God does is always consistent with who God is. Listen, folks, He is utterly incapable of an unholy act. Uh, Since we're in Leviticus, turn over to Leviticus chapter number 10. We'll see here the holiness of God is demonstrated by His judgment on two priests, two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. It says in verse number 1, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which He commanded them not. Do you know what God said? God said, look, I'm holy. And when you burn incense in my tabernacle, this is the recipe that I want you to use. Now listen, I, I, if you're like me, I don't like all smells, do you? I mean, I was going to therapy for my shoulder just the other day, and I, I got done, and I got off the elevator, and I'm walking down the hallway, and uh, I opened the door for a lady that was coming through, and she passed by me, and I'm telling you what, I, I don't know how many bottles that she had soaked herself in, but it literally took my breath. I mean, I'm like, <gasps> I can't breathe. Now, I, I couldn't even tell you whether or not that would have been a pleasant aroma, it was just too much. But how many of you have ever been in a public place and somebody near you, male or female, has doused themselves with an aroma that you just don't like? I, don't, <laughs> I didn't even ask you to raise your hand, but everybody's like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. You know what I find? That God in His holiness says, I'm looking for a particular smell. Nadab and Abihu said, well, we like this smell. We like our incense. And so we're going to offer it to the Lord. Verse number 2, And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Wow. I wonder what the liberal news media would do with that passage of Scripture. They would make God out to be some kind of a tyrant. But listen, God's not a tyrant. God is 
holy. And when he says, as a holy God, look, I am to be sanctified because I am holy. And he says, I want this incense to be burned. Nadab and Abihu had no right or privilege to say, hey, God, we're going to worship you the way that we want to, and you can just like it or lump it. Looks like God lumped it, doesn't it? Looks like God lumped them. And the fire came out and devoured them. If you were to read the rest of the chapter, you would find that Aaron was pretty shook up by the loss of his two boys. Understandably so. There were some other sacrifices that were supposed to be taking place, and Aaron failed in those, and Moses rebuked him. And, you know, the whole, the whole gist of it is that God's program was supposed to carry on. I don't find anywhere that God gave emotional support or counseling to Aaron after his two boys were consumed by that fire. Do you know why God didn't console Aaron? Because God in His holiness knew and understood that His holiness was more important than Aaron's feelings. Hey, this country, this city is filled with churches of all different kinds of denominations that have basically said, God, we want to worship You with our incense. We don't want to sing songs and use music that You like. We want to use our music. God has tastes. He has certain smells that He wants to smell. If we were to worship Him in His holiness, then we need to recognize the fact that His holiness is demonstrated by His judgment. People today think that God will set aside His holiness to accommodate His compassion toward our feelings. Listen, God didn't even emotionally support Job after all that Job had went through. Why would we think that we're more important than Job? The bottom line is God is holy. There's another story. Second, there's a man named Uzzah. And when the ark had been taken by the Philistines, and so Saul, King Saul has been slain, David becomes king. And so they decide that we're going to bring the ark back into the city. And so as they... Uh, they're pulling the, the ark on a cart with oxen. That wasn't the way that God prescribed it to be handled, by the way. And the oxen stumbled and the ark shook just a little bit. And Uzzah reached up and he put his hand on the ark to stabilize it. And you know what happened. God killed Uzzah. Boom, right there and right then. The Bible says that David was displeased when God did that. Just like Aaron was displeased with God when his two boys were consumed with fire. David was displeased when God killed Uzzah. I find in Acts chapter number 5, there were two fake Christians. Well, let me say this. They weren't fake Christians. They were Christians who were just acting phony. Ananias and Sapphira. They sold their land and they brought part of the, the price of it and laid it down at the apostles' feet. And the, the apostles said, is that what you sold your land for? And they said, yeah. Well, they sold their land for 50000 
they gave 25000 but they wanted everybody to think that they gave all that they got out of their house. God never said that they had to give anything. But the problem is, is that they took something that was sacred and holy, the offering to the Lord, and they used it as an opportunity to look good in the eyes of men. You know the story. If you don't know it, you can read it. It's in Acts chapter number 5. Ananias dropped dead right there on the spot. His wife Sapphira came in and Peter questioned her and she said, yep, yep, that's, that's the way it was. She dropped dead right there on the spot. In verse 11 of Acts 5, it says that the church was afraid. It doesn't say that the church was displeased, but when the church saw that, they were afraid. I wonder what it would be like if God were to do that in the church today. I think that if some pretenders started dropping over dead in the pew and everybody knew it was because they were pretenders, I'd probably get a little nervous too, wouldn't you? You know, it's an interesting application of that story. When God's presence is in a church, He will take care of the hidden things if the church will take care of the revealed things. In 1 Corinthians 7, uh, God, excuse me, 1 Corinthians uh, 5, God rebukes the church at Corinth for not taking care of known sin in the camp. I find in, um, in the book of Joshua that Achan took of a, a wedge of gold and a Babylonian garment, and because of that, the children of Israel went out to battle against Ai, a little bitty city, right after they had defeated Jericho. I mean, they defeated uh, the, the, the number one ranked city. And then when they went up against a Division two rival, they ended up fleeing from them. They didn't take them serious because they had forgotten the fact that their power did not lie in their numbers or their military ability. It relied in the presence and the holiness of their God. Joshua, when they run from Ai, Joshua gets on his face before the Lord and he's, Oh God, please help us. And this is what the Lord said, Joshua 7.10, And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up, wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? Interesting. God says, why are you crying out to me? You need to find out what went wrong. There's sin in the camp. This isn't the time to pray. This is the time to clean house. Once again, when God's presence is in a church, He'll take care of the hidden things if the church will take care of the revealed things. There are things that need to be confronted. And if we will do what God expects us to do, then we can expect God to do what only He can do. How about the inhabitants of Canaan? In Deuteronomy 9, in fact, since we're close there, take your Bibles and go to Deuteronomy 9. Remember, we're talking about the holiness of God demonstrated by His judgment. Deuteronomy chapter 9 And verse number 3, the Lord says, Understand therefore this day 
that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee as a consuming fire, he shall destroy them, and he shall bring them down before thy face, so shalt thou drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord hath said unto thee. Speak not thou in thine heart after that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord doth drive them out from before thee. Not for thy righteousness or for the uprightness of thy heart dost thou go to possess their land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. And that he may perform the word which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand therefore that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. I wonder after 9-11 when we went in and just in a matter of weeks took down Saddam Hussein and the Iraqi military. I mean, literally, we it didn't take very long at all. And then all of the other Middle Eastern nations, when they saw the demonstration of our Tomahawk missiles and smart bombs and the capabilities of our military, uh, pretty much our negotiating um, um, world politics and our ambassadors were powerful people of influence because of our military demonstration. The average American was probably thinking, you know what? They've got Allah and we've got God. And so because we've got the right God, God must have blessed us and we won. Listen, I got news for you. Any victory, any blessings that we have in America today is not because we deserve it. I'm not unpatriotic. I love my country. But my country is a shame in many, many ways. We have forgotten and rejected the God of the Bible, the same God that we supposedly trust, the same God who has given us the blessings and the freedom. We take His freedom and His liberty that He has given us, and what have we used it for in America? We have legalized same-sex marriages. We've legalized abortion. And at the risk of being too negative and downer, I could just keep talking about things and make the list bigger and bigger and bigger. Hey, God hasn't blessed us because we are a righteous, deserving nation. It's just simply His mercy that He has blessed us. Israel needed to understand that. God wasn't saying, hey, I'm giving you all this and doing this all for you because you're so wonderful. God says, no, you're not wonderful. They're just more wicked than you are. Now, personally, I'd like to say this. uh, Any of the grace or blessings of God that I can get in on, I'll take them. I, I don't have to feel good about it. I don't have to feel worthy of it or deserving of it. I'm just glad that God would give me a crumb from His table. Amen? Man is often outraged by acts of injustice toward us or our fellow man. Oh, we get worked up when somebody is treated unjustly. Kind of like David's response when Nathan brought him the story about the wayfaring man and the little lamb. 
I don't have time to tell the whole story, but I mean, Nathan told him that story and David said, the man that's done that shall surely die. And Nathan said, I'm talking about you, Davy boy. You know, I'm a little conjecture there. Hey, thou art the man, Nathan said. David got all worked up about something that was valuable to him, but he missed the point that what he had done had displeased a holy God. The holiness of God is demonstrated by His judgment. Number three, the holiness of God is declared by the unholiness of man. Sigmund Freud claims that man created the concept of God in order to face the fears of nature. That's the most ridiculous, insane statement I've ever heard in my life. If man created this Bible concept of God to help us overcome fears, why would man create or invent a God whose holiness is more dreadful than anything we can imagine? Freud was a fool. The holiness of God is declared by the unholiness of man. In Exodus 33, no need to turn there, Moses was getting to know God. Moses was getting closer to the Lord. At one point, the Bible says that Moses and the 70 elders of Israel, it says they saw the God of Israel. But Moses recognized the fact that we didn't really see the God. We there's God was showing Himself in a the form of a man, but Moses knew that uh, there's a lot that I'm not seeing here. And so Moses says to God, he says, I beseech you, show me your glory. God says, I can't do that, Moses, for no man can see me and live. God's holiness and and man's unholiness, it just shows that we could not even handle one glimpse of a holy God. It would drop us dead instantly. So God says, Moses, I, I can't do that. But he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, I'll pass by you. I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock. You'll see my shadow. You'll see my hinder parts. But that's about as far as I can go. Moses saw something of the glory of God that to my knowledge, no other human being has seen. Certainly not on this earth. You know, while God, while Moses didn't drop dead from the glory of God, he comes down off of the mountain And his face was glowing and shining so much that the children of Israel, it's like, whoa, you need, we got to put a veil over Moses' face. It's like Moses was radioactive from just seeing the hinder parts of the glory and holiness of God. I'm telling you, it's declared. The unholiness of man obviously declares the holiness of God. In Isaiah chapter number 6, the Bible says Isaiah sees this vision and he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and His train filled the temple. It was a majestic monarch that he saw. And when Isaiah saw the glory of God, you know what he did? He fell down on his face and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. I mean, we get a glimpse of the holiness of God. You know why people don't get under conviction for sin today? Because they don't realize the truth that God is a holy God. In Luke chapter number 5, Jesus, God manifests in the flesh. He says to His disciples, He said, have you caught anything? They said, no, we've toiled all day, we've caught nothing. He said, cast over on the other side of the ship. Peter, who had just seen Jesus heal his mother-in-law from a sickness, had just seen miracle after miracle, Peter says to Jesus, he says, Lord, you know, we've toiled all night. In essence, Peter's saying, you know what, Jesus, you grew up a carpenter's son. I've been fishing all my life. We have toiled all night, and I'm telling you, we ain't going to catch no fish tonight. And then it says, but nevertheless, at thy bidding, I'll do it. He threw the net out on the other side, and all of a sudden, they're pulling up more fishes than the boat can even handle. You know what Peter said to Jesus when that happened? He said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. When we come face to face with the holiness of God, uh, it, we start realizing just how unholy that we are. Number four, I'd like to say that the holy, I'd like to talk about the holiness of God and His mercy. Do you know that mercy and grace are extended voluntarily or they are not truly mercy and grace? What do I mean by that? I mean that the mercy and grace of God that He extends to us, He never owes it to any of us. No one deserves it. No one merits it. Romans 9 verse 15, For He saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Boy, we think, people grow up today and... Um, you know, they learn how to manipulate their daddy and their mommy, and they think that they can manipulate a holy God, and it just doesn't work. We've got a generation of practical atheists today that are sucking their thumb mad at God because they didn't get their way. Well, I just, I just can't believe in a God that would be like that. Sorry, it's the only one there is. The only real one. You can believe whatever you want to believe. Uh, well, I'm just not going to believe in God anymore. That is the religious adult version of the three-year-old that says, if I don't get my way, I'm going to hold my breath till I pass out. I, I, never, I never was foolish enough to attempt that with my mother, with my mommy. Mommy said, pass out, kid. <laughs> she might have added something to that here, here. while you're passing out. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Thank you, sir. May I have another? <laughs> hey, God says, I'll have mercy who I want to have mercy on, Moses. I'll have compassion. I'm God, and I will do whatever I want. Mercy and grace are voluntary, or they are not mercy and grace by way of definition. Let me give you a scenario. you got ten people that equally sin. I mean, sin equally. Ten people. And 
Five of them are prosecuted, and five of them get to go free. You know what we would say? We would say, that's not fair. They all did the same thing. Five got off. Five got prosecuted. That's just not fair. Well, I guarantee you, if you were one of them that got off, you wouldn't say to the judge, judge, that's not fair. No, you'd be saying, let's get out of here before he changes his mind. Let's move to a different state, something, change our identity. But, I mean, we did it, and everybody knows we did it, and he showed mercy. He showed grace. <laughs> I, I got in legal trouble. Um, right after I graduated from high school, and I remember I sat in a court case, and there was three cases in front of mine for people who had done the same thing. And all three of them, the judge was lenient. I mean, one of them, it was the guy's third or fourth offense, and the judge basically slapped him on the wrist. And I'm I'm sitting there, it's like, oh, praise you know, I didn't say praise the Lord. I wasn't right with God, but I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah I got this. I'm going to get off. And then I got up there, and the judge through the book at me. Everything that he could give me for the crime that I had committed, I got it. And I walked out of there. There's nothing. You know, I look back at it, and you know what? The guy who got the slap on the wrist, the judge looked at him. It's like, you know what? I, there ain't nothing going to fix him. He's, he doesn't care. The judge saw a young man that maybe there was hope, and so he judged me with righteous judgment because he was intelligent. And you know what? There's a lot of things that just simply aren't fair, but God will show mercy and grace where He wants to. And listen, no one who gets mercy and grace ever deserves it. And when the person doesn't get mercy and grace, you know when I walked out of that courthouse, it didn't matter what God, what the judge sentenced everybody else to, because whatever they did was between them and the judge. The bottom line is the punishment that I got for my crime was absolutely in accordance to the law. And so because of that, the judge was a just and a fair judge. He didn't punish me more than the law allowed. And so he was a righteous judge. And I just walked away whining because he wasn't as good to me as he was to somebody else. This mentality is so prevalent among people today. Secondly, the grace of God is often taken for granted. You know, we sing the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. But the reality of it is, is the grace of God is not really what amazes us. What amazes us is the justice of God. We believe He is gracious, but we generally act as though He just isn't quite gracious enough. We know He does nice things for us but he could always do a little bit more. The next thing is this. We need to understand that one single sin forfeits all rights to the gift of life. I don't know if everyone can see our banner because of the decorations, but 
Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin. You notice it doesn't say the wages of sins. It says the wages of sin. One single sin that we have committed causes us to forfeit all rights to the gift of life. Someone once said this, God is qualified to be the supreme judge of heaven and earth. There is no corruption in Him. No one can bribe or manipulate Him. He shows no partiality and no respect of persons. He never acts in ignorance and never makes a mistake. He never changes. We may see non-justice with God, but never injustice. One single sin is all that we need to look at ourselves and say, you know what, if I get any mercy or grace from God, it's more than what I deserved. I wonder if we would start seeing God the way that He really is, how it would change our lives dynamically. Last point, number five, the holiness of God in His habitation. A little while ago, I showed you the text, Exodus 3, 5, Moses and the burning bush. And God says, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Listen, I know there's been some arguments as to where exactly Mount Sinai is in the Arabian Peninsula, or the Sinai Peninsula today. You know, one uh, group on the internet says that it's down here. Another one traditionally says Mount Sinai is in a different place. You could find the exact location. I mean, you could find that burning bush. And you could walk right up to that, whatever is left of that burning bush that did not get consumed. And you could walk up and you could, you could prune off a little souvenir to take home. And God wouldn't kill you. Because it's no longer a holy place. Because it was not holy because of the geographical location. It was holy because of the presence of God. God is holy in His habitation. You know that the angels in the Bible are called holy angels? And yet the seraphims in Isaiah 6-2, the Bible says that they cover their faces in the presence of a holy God. God is holy in His habitation in heaven. Psalm 20, verse number 6, talks about His holy heaven. Heaven is a holy place. Revelation 21 and verse 27, speaking of the new Jerusalem, says, There shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. You know what? In the millennium, there's not going to be any news. No media. Because they're all a bunch of liars. They are. I'm conservative as they come. And, 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 I, and I get less irritated when I watch conservative news. And even that's not even, I'm not even sure I trust them anymore. But but they're so slanted, you know, you hear the slant from one side and the slant to the other, and, and I'm just sitting there thinking, hey, I'm an intelligent American man. Just tell me the facts. I can figure out what I want to think about them. Just tell me the truth. 
You don't get that. You get agenda. You get lies. You get manipulation. I don't know how you feel about these, this impeachment inquiry, but I mean, I probably watched a total of maybe 40 minutes of it. And everything that I'm seeing, I listen to these testimonies and I'm thinking, what does any of that have to do with impeachment? Now, if they've got the goods on our president, I, I, maybe we just need to be patient and wait. Maybe it's coming. I don't know, but I haven't heard anything that is any more than a bunch of people whining because they didn't get their way. And I, listen, I am saying that objectively. It's just, it's unholy. Listen, in the New Jerusalem, nothing's going to enter that works a lie. There's going to be no guile. There's going to be no sin. Because God is holy in His habitation. No sin will be allowed. I find, number two, that God is holy in His earthly tabernacle. When God had Moses set up that place of worship, that earthly tabernacle, and he told him the pattern and showed him how to build it. The Bible says in Hebrews 9 and verse number 3, after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. If we could in our mind just pretend that this sanctuary is the tabernacle. And let's say, for instance, that up here separating the platform from you, there'd be this big curtain. The Bible referred to out here in the sanctuary as the holy place. But back here behind the veil, there was a mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. And God's presence would be there on that mercy seat. And because of that, it was called the Holy of Holies. The holiest of all. Hey, on planet earth, there could never be a more holy place than that Holy of Holies where God literally sat between the cherubims. No sin was allowed. In Exodus 28, you know, I'd like to show this to you because there's a practical application. In Exodus 28 and verse 42, uh, the Lord here says to Moses about Aaron and the priests. Now, they're, they're, they have to go behind the veil. They have to walk up some steps to the altar and sacrifice the animals. And it says this, it says, and thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness. So underneath their priestly garments, they were supposed to put on some breeches. That's what breeches are, by the way. They're supposed to put on some breeches. Why? Because, you know, if you have a robe or a garment that goes down to the knee, and you start walking up some steps, and everybody's down here floor level, they're going to see above your knee. And I hate to spoil all of your summertime apparel, but the Bible says that above the knee is nakedness. I didn't make that standard or that rule. God did. God says here, make these breeches that from the loins even to the thighs. That's what the loin starts right here. The thigh starts at the kneecap. He says, cover that part up. Watch this. Um, and they shall be upon Aaron and upon his sons when they come in under the tabernacle of the congregation or when they come near under the altar to minister in the holy place. 
that they bear not iniquity and die, it shall be a statute forever unto him and his seed after him. I'm telling you what, we, we see among God's people, the world, you expect a certain amount of immodesty and nakedness from a pagan world. But you know what's sad is how much of it that the styles of this world has crept in among God's people where the average Christian, if I showed them that verse, they'd be going, nobody talk, what? I don't, what? Well, I don't see anything wrong with that. Okay, Scripture and verse. Well, I just don't think that the that Bible says all of that, and I don't think that God cares, you know, how I dress. We just need to love one another. You know what I say to that? Scripture and verse. Don't represent what you think about the Bible when you don't know what the Bible says. That would be not, that would be, just be foolishness. Once again, it's like, it's like the body of Christ has become a bunch of God's children who are just rebellious teenagers that don't like the rules. It's sad. All right, moving quickly along. Uh, how about God being holy in His bodily tabernacle? 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. God says, I want my temple to be holy. I want it to glorify me. God didn't want sin in, um, in um, His tabernacle. God wouldn't allow sin in heaven. God doesn't want sin in the tabernacle of our body either. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. I've said this before, and I I believe it with all of my heart. There are way less backslidden Christians than what we realize. People who say that they're saved and on their way to heaven and have known sin in their life and there just doesn't seem to be any consequences, no judgment of God, I got news for you. You, you, you better take your Bible and take a black sharpie and just scratch out 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16 because it doesn't make any sense to your life. Now it's true, but you, you might as well mark it out with a sharpie because if you're a child of God and your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, God will put up with a lot. He put up with a lot with me. But I know this, that I got to the point where God says, I'm tired of living in your dirty, stinking, filthy temple. You better clean it up or I'm going to burn it up. I'm not talking about burning in hell. I'm talking about God taking me out of here. I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that God was getting ready to take me out because He kept speaking to me, He kept talking to me, and I realized I knew I wasn't right with God, and God said, it's time, son. 
And thank God, His grace and His mercy was shown to me, and I got right with the Lord. In conclusion, Martin Luther, the man who is given credit for kicking off the Reformation, he wasn't the only one, by the way, but he's kind of given credit for firing the first shot when he nailed his 95 thesis there on the cathedral door. But he was obviously a man that was terrorized in his conscience by the thought of a holy God. One thing you got to say about Martin Luther, when he read the Bible, he took it literally and he took it seriously. He was accused by some as being crazy. One man stated, was Luther crazy? Well, perhaps. But if he was, our prayer is that God would send an epidemic of such insanity that we too may taste of the righteousness that is by faith alone. Martin Luther was so tormented by the holiness of God when he realized that he could be declared righteous in the eyes of God, it was a life-changing, meaningful thing to him. How many testimonies of salvation... I mean, when people say, well, yeah, I got saved, and it was no more meaningful to them if you were standing in a line on Black Friday and the store owner came out and started handing out gift cards. Oh, I got something for nothing. Oh, awesome. Martin Luther wasn't like, oh, awesome. Martin Luther felt so much relief because he was no longer under the judgment and condemnation of a holy God, he had been set free and had been justified by faith. Hebrews 12, verse number 28 says, Let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. The Jewish scribes, who were responsible for copying out the Scripture long before the Gutenberg Press. If they wanted a copy of Scripture, somebody had to handwrite every single word. The Jewish scribes had certain laws and regulations on everything that they wrote down. And one thing that they were required to do is every time they transcribed the name God or Lord, they would wash their hands. But whenever they were supposed to write God's name, Jehovah, before their pen ever dipped in the ink, they had to go out and wash their entire body before writing the word Jehovah. Folks, how much more should we, we who have the blessings of Calvary's cross. We who have the demonstration of the love and mercy and grace of God, how much more should we serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your holiness. Lord, while our efforts today have been feeble, and certainly lacking. God, we ask that You would take, and Lord, the things that we have said that are true and right, 
We pray, God, that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts. Help us, Father, to recognize and realize your holiness. May we serve you with that godly fear. May we fear you. May we not take sin lackadaisically like it's no big deal. May we take you serious. Oh, God, help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.